Sometimes we struggle to finish things. I would uh, consider myself an adequate rough carpenter. I like doing things like putting up studs or doing simple projects with wood. The detailed stuff like measuring trim or making a dovetailed box frustrates me. Other people are great at the detailed jobs but struggle to get big things done quickly. And that's fine. God has put both people in the types of people in the world and also in our church. But what happens if the reason for finishing or not finishing is that we quit too soon? We're missing the right size bolt. We ran out of gas to finish mowing the lawn or tilling the garden, so we just stopped the work. At our houses, maybe that leads to frustration. Usually those things, though, don't rise to the level of sin. Maybe they show being naive like Proverbs warns about. I've often wondered this about the people that own the house before me, some of the things they left. Why did you do it this way? But I don't know that they're always deliberate foolishness. They're just maybe not the best choices. But there are instances where God is severely displeased with us giving up too easily. We're going to look at one of those examples this morning and think about how it applies to our everyday lives. In our passage, the Israelites start really well. They assemble in Jerusalem, they collect funds, and they start building the temple. They lay the foundation with a mixture of joy and weeping because the moment had come to rebuild God's house. They reject the temptation to collaborate in God's work with the idolatrous and half-hearted people of the land. But then their enemies stir up trouble against them, attack them in a decisive battle, and the work stops. The temple sits idle for about 20 years. No more work happens until Haggai and Zechariah the prophets stir up the people, which we'll look at next week. So from Ezra 3 and 4, I think we see this idea. Start and finish well to honor God with your work. Start and finish well to honor God with your work. We honor God by starting well despite fear. We see this in the first seven verses. Joshua and Zerubbabel lead the people in doing offerings once again. All the people gather to Jerusalem in unity. We see this in verse 1. The sons of Israel gathered as one man to Jerusalem. They're unified in their purpose to reestablish temple worship as God required of them. Joshua and Zerubbabel rebuild the temple, or rather the altar, as God required, according to the pattern in the law of Moses, according to the sacrifices that were described in the law of Moses. They do these things despite the threat of their neighbors. They continue making offerings and preparing to build the temple. It says in verse 3, they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands. It's a hard phrase to translate. Some commentators have just said the, the, the preserved text that we have is obviously wrong. Throw it out, start over, do something different. Regardless of the exact phrasing of this difficult sentence, the meaning and context seems to be clear. They did the work despite the threat of the surrounding people who were unfriendly to them. They set up the altar. They offer burnt offerings on it. They observe the, the Feast of Booths, other festivals that were required. They keep making the burnt offerings and the freewill offerings. We see down through verse 6, even though the foundation of the temple had not yet been laid. And they continue in the work hiring masons, carpenters, suppliers to prepare for laying the foundation of the temple according to the decree of the king of Persia and according to the urging of God. They are doing the work despite the fear of the peoples around them. Why would they be afraid of these peoples? Were well, these were the same people who had attacked them in times past? 
Think about the state of the city of Jerusalem. There's no walls around it. It's just kind of open. So if the enemies want to come and attack, there's nothing to stop them. So who do they have to rely on? They have to rely on God. They have to be faithful and overcome that fear by God's help. Reminds me of the passage where it says, when I am afraid, I will trust in you, right? That's a verse we have little kids memorize, but it's certainly true in situations like this. Sometimes the hardest part of a project is getting started, and getting started is a major step in following God well, but it's easy to, once we get started, to forget God's role in any ongoing process that we make. And so we see secondly from verses 8 through 13, that we honor God by recognizing our progress is due to his faithfulness. We honor God by starting well despite our fear. We honor God by recognizing ongoing progress is due to his faithfulness. Joshua and Zerubbabel begin to oversee the laying of the foundation. It's interesting that they are not themselves necessarily doing the work like we see in the book of Nehemiah, but rather they have hired other people to do the work, but they're overseeing it. Why was it necessary for it to be overseen? So that it met the pattern and specifications that God had spelled out for them through the words of Moses. They appoint, first of all, the Levites, 20 years and older, to oversee the work. We see this in verse 8. And then they partner with the tribe of Judah to also oversee the workmen. And that's the verse 9 where Joshua or Joshua is united with the sons of Judah to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. And so both the priests and Levites and the tribe of Judah, also including the tribe of Benjamin, they were often described as one people, they're all collaborating together to make sure the work is done the right way. And then they, what do they do? They praise God when the foundation is finally laid. We see this in verses 10 through 13. They praise God according to the Psalms, I believe is what it's saying here, when it says the directions of King David of Israel. David writes the Psalms. There are many descriptions of the use of the Psalms in the various festivals. So we understood that this was how they did it in the, in the ancient times, that they would use the Psalms at the festivals to commemorate God's work, to remind themselves of truth about God. This is a renewal of worship that quite honestly has been lost for a number of generations. Even though there was some uh, mockery of it that was still going on prior to the 70 years of exile, there hadn't been true devoted worship to God, quite honestly, since the time of David in any consistent basis. There were exceptions along the way, King Hezekiah, Um, Jehoshaphat. There were exceptions along the way, but for the most part, they hadn't faithfully been worshiping God the way that Moses set out for them and the way that David set an example for them for generations. And they're reestablishing worship. They're establishing it in the right way. And they are acknowledging in this moment God's faithfulness. We see in verse 11, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. They're acknowledging that the reason we're here and the work has begun and we're making progress in it is because God has been faithful to his promises to us as his people. We have been unfaithful. We've gone our own way. We've sinned in many ways. And yet God has been faithful. He's brought us back and he's supplied the money for the work. He's supplied the workers for the work. And he's making sure that the work is being accomplished. And yet, even in this joy is sorrow. Verse 12, 
The old men who saw the first temple wept with a loud voice, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the joy and the weeping could not be distinguished from each other. There is a possibility that what they're saying is their sorrow at how the new temple compares to the old temple. But since we're talking about the foundation just having been laid, I don't think that's what's being described here. I think there's joy at the fact that it's finally happening. It's been knocked down. It's been destroyed for so long. And now these people who didn't think or at least had a question mark in, this, in their mind of, is this going to be restored in our lifetime? They finally see it being restored. And so there is joy and sorrow both in this moment. Joy and sorrow are both part of following God. We should not be afraid of either response, especially when God accomplishes a great work in and through us. But lest we get carried away with the emotion of a moment, realize testing often follows shortly after. There are two tests that come next. So they've honored God by starting well. They've honored God by acknowledging his role in what is accomplished up to this point. But now comes a test. We honor God by rejecting partnership with unbelievers and those who follow God plus something else. We see this in the first three verses of chapter 4. The enemies of Judah come and offer to help. Why do I say that they are enemies of Judah? Well, because that's what it says in verse 1. But if we look back to chapter 3, verse 3, they were terrified because of the peoples of the land. It, it's, a, it's a strange scenario that's happening here. The people that they were afraid of, the people that are described in verse 1 as their enemies, come and say, hey, let us help you with your project. And they claim to do so on the basis of, we also seek God. Verse 2. We've been sacrificing to him for all this time. I think it's important to recognize this was not right worship. Why do I say that? There was no temple, there was no altar, there were no priests, there were no Levites. So the pattern of worship that God had established had not been existing in the land for these 70 years or more. And quite honestly, longer than that, because the northern tribes of Israel had been conquered by Assyria and people sort of imported and intermarried with the people of the land. That leads to the Samaritans that we encounter in the New Testament. And some of them didn't necessarily intermarry. They're just pagans living in the land that had formerly been the, belonging to the northern tribes of Israel. So if they say, hey, we've been worshiping God, what sort of way were they worshiping God? They hadn't come down to participate in the worship at Jerusalem historically. They couldn't have been doing worship the way that Moses described and laid out for them because the temple had been knocked down and destroyed and there wasn't any of the things in the temple because they bring all the stuff that goes with the temple back with them from Nebuchadnezzar's capture when Cyrus sends them back. So that hasn't taken place. So what sort of worship has been going on? Probably and almost certainly based on the context and history and all the things that we know, the kind of worship that the northern tribes of Israel were doing. We got a little bit of God and we got a lot of paganism. We're worshiping the one true God, but we have these golden idols by means of which we are worshiping the one true God. We've set up our rival priesthood. This has, I think, echoes of what we see in the book of Judges. Remember? There's a story in the book of Judges. There's a guy who says, you know what? It would be good to worship God. 
goes and finds a random guy. Hey, you want to come be my priest? I'll pay you money. Hey, I've got these idols in my house. So you're going to be my priest. We're going to worship God using these idols. And it's going to be great because God will be happy with it because we're worshiping the one true God, right? That's not how worship works. We don't get to decide this is how we worship God. And because the, the, um, the direction of this often goes in our modern Christian discussions of things like what kind of music do we use in church, that's not the main point that I'm making. The main point that I'm making is we don't get to imagine God according to our concept of what we want God to be and then worship that. That's the point that I'm making. And what I mean by that is um, if we say um, God is my buddy, right? If we say I can come before the God who made everything with, with no reverence whatsoever and we're just going to hang out, then that doesn't honor God, right? Um, if we say that my concept of God and this would be on the other extreme. My concept of God is that God has no connection with his people. Then we're going to worship God in a way that's very formal and, and empty of any sort of recognition that God is a person and we have a personal relationship with him, right? So we have the callous, careless kind of worship on the one side, and we have the overly formalized worship on the other side, and both of those don't honor God because they deny both his majesty and his personal connection with his people. And all of that flows out of us saying, I will worship God how I want to worship God, and he can just be happy with it. And that's sort of the background with which these people are coming and saying, we want to worship God too, we'll help you. Now, what they hope to accomplish is unclear. Um, perhaps it's something like what the Gibeonites hope to accomplish. And this group that comes back is not a tremendously large group, but the reality is throughout history, those who have opposed God's people, Israel, have always felt threatened even when they were only few in number. And we look at contemporary events, the, the way that and I'm not defending everything that the nation of Israel has done be, to the extent that it's a secular political state in many respects, but the reality that you can have vast swaths of people who greatly outnumber a small group of people and yet describe that small group of people as the aggressor and the threat and the problem, that's not a new thing, right? That's what's happening in this situation. And to the extent that any of these people remember the stories of what happened before. Why do I say that? Because of the letter they're going to write to the king. To the extent that any of them remember the stories of the conquest in Joshua's day, there's probably a degree of, if they've come back, and that means there's a resurgence in the power of their God, then let's just make sure we're all on good terms so that everything goes well for us. Because we've been content to live in their land, and we want to keep doing that. And so if we can be friendly to them, then we will have an advantage over them if things start to turn a different direction. But Zerubbabel and Joshua reject their offer. We have nothing in common with you, or you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. 
Now, this seems harsh. Here's people who have come and offered to help, and you're just going to spit in their face and say, you have no part of this. Here's a really important principle we have to remember from the Old Testament. Religious distinction is not automatically racial prejudice. Now, if we're going to go by a strict definition of what race is, there's only one race, the human race, right? But if we talk even ethnic differences, there are prejudices that people have in our day based on ethnic differences, differences in culture, differences in appearance, differences in all sorts of things related to people's background and, and all of that, right? And so in our day, if we hear something like somebody says, well, we're this group, and someone who is from a different religious or cultural background comes and says, I want to help you with this, and these people say, no, you can't. We're going to say, well, that seems unfair, right? You're just rejecting them because they're not Israelites like you. They're descendants of the Assyrians or people groups that the Assyrians brought in and, and settled in the land. The problem and the reason God told the Israelites not to marry the nations around them was never about skin color. It was never about cultural differences disconnected from religious differences. It was never about wealth versus poverty. It was always about they worship idols, you worship the one true God. If you intermarry with people who worship idols, you're going to be drawn away from worshiping the one true God and you're going to worship idols. This happened in the time of the judges and God sent plagues to warn them. This happened in the time of the Exodus and God sent plagues to warn them. This happened in the history throughout the nation of the Israel. Every time they collaborated with and intermarried with the peoples of the land, it led to disaster for them spiritually. Now, going back to what I said in my prayer and the conversation that our family was having about the verse in Proverbs about being a companion of gluttons, we have this seemingly contradictory dynamic in our Christian lives of the pattern of Jesus who is a friend of sinners and yet did not sin, the fact that sometimes our understanding of passages like evil communications corrupt good morals has led us to sort of isolate ourselves from unbelievers and then we don't tell them about Jesus which means we're not doing what God's called us to do how are we supposed to reconcile all of that Jesus was a friend of sinners but never sinned when we're a friend of sinners sometimes we're led astray like the people of Israel and you know we didn't figure it all out in our car ride on the way here this morning but kind of the working thesis of what we were coming to was something like this. God calls us to be a friend of sinners, but because we're prone to sin, we have to be careful in it. The people of Israel here are having the right response to let's collaborate on building the temple in saying, if you still worship idols, you don't have any part in building a temple to worship the one true God the way that he's set out for it to be. Now, I will acknowledge this. This attitude morphs over the course of time to the hatred that people have for the Samaritans that leads to the context of like John 4. But in this moment, it's not wrong. They're very clearly saying, God said we're supposed to worship him this way. God sent us back to build the temple. The king has given us permission and authority to do it. 
we're going to do this. And it, when, he, when he says, we ourselves will do this thing, for me it has echoes of what Joshua says at the beginning of Joshua, right? For me and my household, we will serve the Lord, right? Here's our family, we're going to serve God. You don't have a part with us. Now, was there a mechanism by which people who weren't a part of Israel could become part of Israel? Absolutely. Think about Rahab. She's a woman living a sinful lifestyle in the, in the city. And when they come to conquer Jericho, she says, I want to worship your God too, basically. Can I spare my family? And she converts to Judaism, becomes a part of the people of Israel, becomes a part of the line of Christ. So the issue was not, there was no place for people to come. The issue was, they were worshiping God the wrong way with a false system. And so unless that was corrected, you can't be a part of this. The same thing is true in, in our day. We have to be very careful when we're talking to people about Christianity. Um, we cannot attach conditions to following God that God didn't make. But to the extent that there are people in our day who say, yeah, I want Jesus, but I want to also keep worshiping my ancestors. I want Jesus, but I want to also keep whatever other thing that's still a remnant of my old way of life. God says, Jesus replaces all of what you believed before, not Jesus gets added to, right? Sometimes people will say, well, I want to come to God because life will be better for me. I'll get something that I want. And that can't be the condition either. It has to be, I will come and I will follow God for himself through Jesus. Not, I will come and follow God for what he will do to make my life better. And so those are some of the dynamics, both based in their day and that we encounter in our day, that are going on in this exchange. They recognized the nature of the task and the authority they had received to carry it out. They were God's people rebuilding God's temple as God had promised in the land God gave them. They were doing so under the authority of Cyrus who sent them to do the work, and the people who were already in the land didn't have that commission from Cyrus. Sometimes it seems right to partner with unbelievers or those who add something else to the worship of God. But we cannot confuse the gospel by doing this. And what do I mean confuse the gospel? We might say the Roman Catholic Church would state that they value life. So we're going to collaborate with them on the issue of abortion. The reality is the extent to which we collaborate with someone even on an important issue like that has to be done in a way that we don't confuse the gospel. If it's we have a prayer meeting, we're like, we worship God, you worship God, we worship God the same way, everything's the same, we're just sort of partnering together because we're exactly the same. That cannot be the way that we would partner with, for example, the Roman Catholic Church. If we say they value life and we value life, so we're working towards similar goals and they're doing their thing there, we're doing our thing here, and some of the court cases that they pursue help some of the court cases we're trying to pursue, that's different. But if we all sit down and say, here's the priest, here's the pastor, we're all following God the same way, that confuses the gospel. We can't do that. Um, Mormons would say they value the family, right? They would say family values are important. And maybe there's some political issue that we say, all right, this is a threat to the family, and they say this is a threat to the family. Again, to the extent that they are saying 
We're the same as you. We all worship Jesus the same way. We cannot partner with them in some way that gives that understanding of things. Related to this, um, we need to, on the, on the subject of discernment that we were talking about earlier this morning, um, reading books or listening to the ideas of someone who is an unbeliever or has some false ideas, we don't always have to be suspicious of every last thing that every, someone has said. However, we do need to be careful. Not everything that sounds good is good. Not every person who seems to say, I'm a Christian too, actually is. This is what the leaders of Israel avoided by rejecting the peoples of the land. They said, we're going to follow God hard, wholeheartedly. We're going to do the task that he set before us. But they had one more test, and this last one didn't go well. And the point, the fourth point I would make is this. We dishonor God by stopping short of the task due to obstacles. We honor God by starting well. We honor God by acknowledging his role in sustaining us for the work. We honor God by not partnering with people who, who aren't really true believers. But we dishonor God when we stop the task short due to obstacles. We see this in the end of chapter 4. What happens? The peoples of the land, verse 4, discourage and frighten the remnant and accuse them to the king. When it says discourage and frighten them, I think based on verse 4 and also what we see in verse 23, I think the discouraging is not just they come and they say, hey, you guys are dumb, we don't like you. I don't think it's that kind of discouragement, right? This is not like a playground kind of a thing. This is they're attacking them. They're maybe going after the people that are bringing the supplies and disrupting the trade route. They're doing things to stop the work. This is more active. It's not just a verbal thing. They also pursue legal means to stop the work. We see this in verses 4 through 16. Multiple letters were written. Why do I say that? Uh, verse 6, In the days of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against them. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, Mithrida, Tabil, and the rest of his colleagues write to Artaxerxes in Aramaic and from Aramaic. And then verse 8, Rahim the commander and Shemshai the scribe write a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes. So it's possible these are the same letter, but it seems like there are multiple letters being written appealing to the, the emperor, the king of Persia. Hey, stop this work. Don't let it go forward. What do they do? They appeal to history and tradition. Um, verse 10, there is this reference to the rest of the nations, which the great and honorable Osnapar deported and settled in the city of Samaria and the rest of the region beyond the river. So they're saying, here's the history of what's taken place. The great and honorable king who came before and settled us in the land, this was his goal. What's your goal, O great king of Persia, in succession to those who have come before? They warn against the past glory of Israel in verses uh, 11 and following. The Jews are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city, finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now, technically at this point, they're just rebuilding the temple. Let it be known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and it will damage the revenue of the kings. Now, because we are in the service of the palace and it's not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor, therefore we have sent and informed the king so that a search may be made in the record books of your fathers. And you will discover in the record books and learn that this city is a rebellious city and damaging to kings and provinces, and they have incited revolt within it in past days. Therefore, that city was laid waste. We inform the king that if that city... 
is rebuilt and the walls refinished. As a result, you have no possession in the province beyond the river. Now, some of this is true. Israel had been a great nation. Some of it is also true. They had rebelled against the Babylonians and the Assyrians. But some of it was false. They were not at that time seeking to rebel against Persia or overthrow her rule. I'll just point out as a quick aside that this is a very effective strategy to say, hey, watch out for these people. They're going to destroy you and then get everybody to hate them. And to the extent that strategies of people in modern politics parallel the strategies of God's enemies in the past, I think we want to be careful about whether we wholeheartedly support people that use those tactics. So let me be very clear. On the subject of immigration, there are people who have said, watch out for those people. Everybody that comes from that place, they're here to take your stuff and, and commit crimes against you and all those sorts of things. That's true to a point that there are people who come from other lands and seek evil against our country. But to the extent there's also a lot of error mixed in and we as God's people are called to see many people saved who come from various places around the world, we should think about the fact that while a lack of a wall is bad, no borders are bad, we see that in this passage, there's also the reality that part of where Israel goes wrong in the next four or five hundred years is failing to, to be a testimony to the nations around them. They start out well here in this moment, and then they stop caring at all about the nations around them. They stop trying to fulfill God's purpose that they were supposed to welcome the nations to the extent that they would worship their God. And there's a handful of proselytes by the time we come to Jesus' day, but not nearly as many as there should have been because of the isolationist, we are going to exclude everybody else. God's work that he calls us to do toward the nations around us is risky and doesn't always align with American values. So let me just put it this way. When you see people from all over the world in your neighborhood, do you see it as a threat or do you see it as a ministry opportunity? Maybe you are never going to make it over to Africa or Asia or some other part of the world, but they've come right around the corner from you. Do you see that as a ministry or are you suspicious of them and see it as a threat? Their culture is different. Their beliefs are different. They're here to take over our country. That is what a number of politicians would want us to believe. And in part, that may be true. But in the same moment, there's an opportunity for us to share the gospel with them. That was an aside. Come back to the text. The outcome of this is unfavorable to Israel and the work that's going on here. The king responds negatively toward Israel. He sends an answer, peace. Now the document you sent to us has been translated and read before me. A decree has been issued by me and search has been made and it has been discovered that that city has written up, risen up against the kings in past days that rebellion and revolt have been perpetrated in it. The mighty kings have ruled over Jerusalem, governing all beyond the river, and that tribute, custom, and toll were paid to them. So now issue a decree and make these men stop work, that this city may not be rebuilt until a decree is issued by me. Beware of being negligent and carrying this out. Why should damage increase to the detriment of the kings? What happens next? The people of the land attack the people of Israel. As soon as the copy of the document was read, they went in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and stopped them by force of arms. 
Now, he just says, issue a decree, and they're like, let's attack them. So there could be argued that they're not doing what the king said to do, but they found in the king's words a basis for doing what they already wanted to do, which was to attack the Israelites and make the work stop. And the Israelites stopped the work. Verse 24, work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The people of Israel could have argued, well, we stopped because the government officials said we needed to stop. They could have argued and perhaps did, we're not soldiers, how can we defeat so many enemies? Whatever their specific reasons, the work ends for almost 20 years. Were they wrong to stop building? I would argue yes. The law and government isn't always right. Quick aside, we as Christians are going to increasingly live in a society where laws don't align with God's morality. That's not an excuse for us to stop doing things like paying taxes because we don't like high taxes or because the cost of doing things the right way becomes infinitely more expensive. But it does mean that we're not going to, as in past generations, be able to rely on, well, the law says this and the Bible says this and they both line up, so this is why this should be this way. Here the law was unjust. God had said to do this. God had said this is the right thing to do. And the law is saying don't do it. But that was not right. They were supposed to keep doing God's work. It's also important to remember God is more than capable of defeating powerful enemies using a small number of faithful followers. How many people did God use Gideon with Gideon to defeat the people? 300, right? How many Israelites went back to the land? Over 40,000. So, if they had, I would argue, trusted God and kept doing the work, God could have protected them. And, and how do I know that? Because it happens later in the book of Nehemiah. God does protect them. God helps them finish the work. They have to later use a sword and a trowel at the same time, but they get the work done. That could have happened in this moment and not had the 20-year delay if they had been faithful to what God called them to do. How do I know they should have continued? Because when God sends Haggai and Zechariah, we see this in chapter 5, we see it in Haggai 1 and 2, Zechariah chapter 1 and chapter 7, God reproves them for their failure to finish the work. So how do we know that God wasn't pleased with them? Because he rebukes them later on, sends the prophets. Looking back over this passage, as we see how the Israelites started well, but failed to complete the work God gave them, we should think about how it applies to our lives. The first point about doing God's work despite fear. Does God call us to do things despite our fear? Yes. Husbands love your wives. What if she doesn't respect me in return? That's a fear we might have. Wives submit to your husbands. But what if he's selfish? It's a fear we might have. Children obey your parents. But what if they don't listen to my good ideas? I'm not saying they're not good ideas. I'm just saying sometimes that's a fear that kids have. If I do what my parents say, but they never listen to me, should I really be obeying them? Um, Paul says in Romans and also commands in other places that you are capable of and should admonish one another as believers. And one of our fears is, what if I don't know all the answers? What if I don't know how this is going to go? What if it doesn't go well? The Bible in the New Testament specifically urges us to hold fast to the faith. And what is our fear? But what if my life doesn't go the way that I want it to? What if trouble comes in? What if, what if, what if, what if? We have all these fears. Peter says, always have an answer ready. And our fear is, what if people don't like me when I talk about Jesus? These are just a sampling of the many situations where God has said, here's what I want you to do, and we come up with excuses and fears for why we shouldn't do the work. We can have many fears, but those fears are no reason to avoid the work God has called us to. And the Israelites here set us a good example. They did the work despite their fear of the nations around them. They started 
building the temple. What about the idea of seeing and acknowledging God's hand in the course of our lives? We tend toward pride and congratulating ourselves for spiritual progress. I'm just going to point out a phrase that I think sometimes we say, and we should think about what's behind it. I'm not saying it's always bad. Sometimes we want to say something like, I have learned fill in the blank. God has taught me blank. I would argue that more often we should say something like, I am learning this or God is teaching me blank because it's an ongoing process. We can be confident about those lessons to the extent they tie into scripture, but we should also always have this humble recognition that we're still works in progress, right? It's easy for us to say, I have arrived, so now I'm going to tell you about how you should be instead of saying, here's something God's been teaching me and I think still is, right? And again, I'm not saying if you've ever said, I have learned or God has taught me that your intention is pride. I'm just saying it's easy for pride to keep in and we need to examine our hearts. Do you ever take time along the same lines to praise God for how he's worked in your life this week, this year, this decade? The Israelites set a good example of recognizing God's faithfulness as the basis for their progress in God's work. And it's easy for us to pray and then God answers and we don't thank him for his answer to prayer. It's easy for us to say, hey, I feel like I've grown a lot in my spiritual life. Good for me. Instead of saying, God's the reason that any of this happened, right? And we can do this in a strange way, right? If, if, if someone, if we teach a lesson or preach something and someone says, good job, or that was encouraging, that was helpful, we can just be like, praise God, it wasn't me. And we can say that in a disingenuous kind of way. That's not what I'm talking about, but we should always be ready to acknowledge, I'm thankful that God used this in your life. Because ultimately it's not me saying something, it's not you saying something, it's God working through us. What about um, the idea of partnering with unbelievers, that third thing that we talked about? We tend toward two extremes. We talked about this in the Sunday school hour. On the one hand, we can get to the point where we become overly critical and reject anything that's different from our beliefs even a little bit. On the other hand, we can get to a point where we just accept anything and everything without at all considering its value or its source. I think the first extreme leads to a disunity that doesn't honor God. When it comes to churches, we're like, ours is the only true church and everybody else, we don't know about them, but probably not. And the reality is, there are a lot of churches that are following God. There's a lot that aren't, but there are a lot of churches that are following God, and some of them look very different from ours. When we, when we get into a mode of having an overly critical spirit when it comes to their response to the peoples of the land and evaluating this offer of help and all those sorts of things, when we have an overly critical spirit, we feel like we have to correct any potential error immediately. So what I think the way that plays out in the life of our church would be if we have someone who's a new believer or just visiting or something like that, and they make a statement, and in that statement or in that conversation, they say two or three things that were like, I don't agree with that, I don't agree with that, I don't agree with that. We want to often immediately jump on, here's all the things I don't agree with, instead of saying, what is this person's greatest need in this moment? Why is this important? Because... God usually is not fixing 10 things at once in the course of our lives. He's usually working on us about a couple, and we should probably have that approach with other people. Um, we should also, along these same lines, recognize that not every error is equally dangerous, right? And we talked about this in the Sunday School Hour. Uh, this error that they were confronted with was dangerous. They're saying we can combine pagan worship with the worship of God and all be on the same page. 
That is something that rises to the level of false teaching, like we talked about in Sunday school, that if someone rejects a core doctrine of the faith like Jesus is God, you can't say we're all just Christians together, right? But if, if we drop way down to less important things, if someone says, hey, I think that this verse means blank, I gave the example of 2 Thessalonians 2, talks about the one who restrains. Is it human government or is it the work of the Holy Spirit that holds back evil until the day when the Antichrist is revealed and then Jesus comes and conquers him? Good Christians, I would argue, have thought it could be one or the other. If we get into a big fight because we're like, I think this, you think that, over something like that, an interpretation of a single verse that is unclear even to a lot of <coughs> theologians throughout history, then we are not, um, we're not recognizing that every error is not equally dangerous, right? Even on what we could consider potentially second level issues, things like the mode of baptism or certain things connected with worship, things that get into the way that churches do church, not all of that, I would in fact argue most of it doesn't rise to the level of false teaching automatically. And in connection with this, I think we need to recognize that God's Spirit is powerful enough to hold believers to the right path despite exposure to error. So when we're confronted with a situation like the people of Israel were, we have to ask ourselves, is it the same kind of situation, right? Is it this, if I say yes to it, is going to completely undermine faith and salvation entirely? Or is it something much less significant that we can let go for a little while and come back to after we've talked about the more important issues. Case in point, you're talking to someone who's an unbeliever and that unbeliever makes some statement about whatever it would be, their view on something that you find distasteful or unpleasant or just straight up wrong. But there's not a clear path from arguing about that thing to you need to trust Jesus, we need to think about how do we get the conversation turned toward you need to trust Jesus instead of this thing that you're doing like swearing or whatever else that I don't like and that dishonors God. Is it bad? Yes. But is it the greatest bad and the most urgent bad of that encounter? No. And so I think we have to be wise in how we work through those things. The second extreme that I said about partnering with unbelievers is this danger of getting swept up with every new fad or idea. We can be blind to the dangers of false teachers who appear trustworthy and speak eloquently, but inwardly are full of immorality and greed and deceit, especially if it's someone that we know or are acquainted with or if someone we know says, hey, check this out, we can potentially get swept up into those things. And that's the sort of danger that I think we have to be careful of. The people of Israel could have partnered with unbelievers and wandered away from following God. What about this last idea of finishing well? The last idea of finishing well. So they started out well, despite their fear. They continued the work acknowledging God's faithfulness. They said no to partnering with unbelievers, but then they didn't finish well. Paul in the New Testament is pretty concerned about the idea of finishing well. He over and over again says, I am constantly praying that my work would not be in vain, that you would not wander away from the faith. So I think we should also be concerned about this idea of finishing well. A couple of quick points on this. God 
He is not honored if we serve him for 90% of our life and then slack off in the last 10%. Even if we never quit following God entirely, if we say, I'm just going to coast, that's not the attitude that God wants us to have. On the other side of things, God sometimes will save person, despite, uh, save someone despite a long period of time of them going their own way. And that's the hope. I think what we're going to see next week is, did they waste 20 years? Yeah. But did the work get finished in the end? Yes, because God was the one who was faithful in upholding it and making it happen. I would urge us, though, not to waste the 20 years, right? If we are struggling with a particular sin, or if we find ourselves going our own way, it would be easy to say, well, it's not worth the effort right now, which is kind of the attitude that the Israelites have. And they forgot that God is the one who helps overcome seemingly impossible obstacles. And theirs were very clearly physical obstacles, threats to their physical lives, right? But it was not disconnected from spiritual realities. The fact that they lacked faith to see God work to protect them from physical danger was a sign of a spiritual problem. And so in our lives, maybe the threats aren't physical things. Maybe there's not your neighbor's not coming and breaking your windows and trying to get in your house. That's kind of the scenario that we have here. But there's things that we know that God wants us to do that are the right way to do things, but we say, I've done it, and I've done it, and I've done it, and things aren't getting any better. Or I... I know God wants me to, but it just doesn't seem to work. We can be in that same mode of going through a long swath of essentially wasting our time, not necessarily that our eternal souls are at stake, but that we're vastly more ineffective than God would have wanted us to be in some period of our life because we give up too easily. Hebrews 12 says, Which of you in your striving against sin has gone to the point of shedding blood? What I mean by that is, Jesus prays in the garden so fervently that he sweats blood. And the disciples are sleeping. And I think, based on observation of my own life, and based on just things I've read about church history, and I think if we're honest, if we just look at our own lives, there are a lot of moments when we're like the disciples. We're sleeping, we're coasting, we're just getting by. And God wants us to fervently pursue him. And there are constantly going to be obstacles thrown up in the way of doing that. It might not be the nations around trying to sue you and attack you and stop what you're doing. But it's... It's sometimes more intangible things like discouragement and fear and all of that kind of thing. And I would just urge you to say, if God was displeased with the people of Israel when they stopped doing the work that he wanted them to do, God is similarly displeased with us when we stop doing the work that he calls us to do. Why do I know that? Because of the verse that says, don't grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we will reap if we do not faint. Why is there that warning? Why is there that admonition? Because we're prone to fainting, we're prone to getting weary, we're prone to not following through on what God calls us to do.
doesn't mean it's easy. It is absolutely not easy. It doesn't mean we don't need God's help. We absolutely need God's help. It doesn't mean there aren't going to be moments when we stumble, because there are going to be moments when we stumble. But what does it say in either Psalms or Proverbs? The righteous man falls seven times and rises again. By God's grace, by God's help, he can help us to overcome those obstacles and do the work that he's calling us to do. God is honored when we start and finish well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths from your word. We thank you for the example of the Israelites. You said in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, you put the good and the bad examples both in the Bible for us to learn from. So that through patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. And through the bad examples that we would be warned and not do the same kinds of sins. And so, Lord, if we are faithfully following you, I pray you would help us not to be discouraged. And if we're acting like the Israelites and we're not faithfully following you, due to laziness or struggles with sin or whatever else, then Lord, convict our hearts and help us to come to you for the forgiveness that you offer, to find you a faithful God who finishes the work that you've begun in us. Lord, help us to start well despite our fears. Help us to constantly acknowledge your work along the way to sustain us in the tasks you have for us. Help us to say no to partnering with those who are your enemies. But Lord, we pray that you would also help us to finish, not just get part of the way done and quit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.